First Peter chapter one, Acts chapter eight and Hebrews chapter five. So if you were how many of you here were here on Sunday? OK, um, share with you, I think the title that we're going to use for the whole book, and that is a living hope. My desire is that as we go through this book, uh, the Lord will provide hope for those who maybe are sometimes tempted to feel hopeless. Um, hope for the suffering. Let me give you guys some background on this book. In 64 A.D., fire leveled the city of Rome. It was arson. The fire would go out in one area and it would reappear very shortly thereafter. There were thousands, thousands upon thousands of homeless people because of this fire. The city was in ruins. And soon it was, well, it was a question that raged that threatened to consume the city, which was, who did this? The answer was Nero, the emperor Nero, certified uh, by historians as a, literally a, a pyromaniac, a guy who loved to set fires, number one, to watch them burn, but number two, so that he could rebuild. With nearly everyone in, in the city up in arms about this arson, Nero needed a scapegoat. Now, you can say a lot of things about Nero. He was crazy as a bedbug. He was a complete loon. He was crazy, but he was not stupid. He knew that even though he was emperor, he couldn't get away with just having this, uh, take, taking the, uh, the credit, if you will, for this, this fire. So he laid the blame at the feet of a certain religious sect, followers of one Jesus of Nazareth. Christians, he said the Christians did this. Now, it's brilliant in a crazy as a loon sort of way because the Christians were already looked down upon. They were already hated uh, by much of, of Rome. I don't know if you, if you are familiar with the, the situation, but at first uh, Christianity was pretty well received in Rome because it was, uh, you know, what's the word, uh, a community that, that received lots and lots of uh, different uh, ways of thinking. But by this time, there had been some rumors that had started to uh, to surface about these Christians. One, believe it or not, was that they were cannibals. And when you think about it, okay, you could see how that one would get started, is because they would go behind closed doors and talk about eating the body of the Lord Jesus and drinking his blood, right? You could look in the scriptures and say, well, it says right here their, their master uh, said that. Well, we know that that was not literal. Um, another rumor apparently that was going around about these, these folks was that they were anti-family, meaning they broke up families. When someone would come to, to know the Lord, uh, the unbelieving spouse would be like, who, have you, who are you and what have you done with my, my spouse, right? It was, you know, hopefully almost always for the better, but uh, this was not what some of the, uh, the spouses signed up for. So they left the, uh, the unbelieving or the believing spouse. There was also the rumor of love feasts. We, uh, we have an agape feast. We're going to have it on Saturday. Uh, agape means love, right? Um, some of the uh, 
the Romans spread that rumor that the, the Christians were into orgies. It's like, well, the Romans would know. <laughs> but that wasn't true either. And then finally, and probably the most persuasive, if you're Nero looking for a scapegoat, aren't these the, the guys who, aren't these Christians, the people who say that God will come and judge the world by fire? See, the enemy was using misinformation to spread lies about the followers of Jesus. So they made a ready scapegoat for Nero. The result, history bears this out, tremendous persecution. I'm not exaggerating here. There were Christians that were literally dipped in pitch and set ablaze while alive in Nero's garden as torches, human torches for his parties. There were Christians that were stuffed into animal skins uh, and set before wild animals to, uh, to be torn limb from limb. There were Christians that were literally dragged behind chariots for the amusement of Nero and his parties. That's the ugly backdrop for this epistle. Peter writes to a church that is suffering. And he writes to them with basically this message. We have a living hope. Now, I don't know, some of you are probably thinking, well, I thought I had it bad. We have a living hope. Now, we don't face that kind of persecution here. And I'm... I don't, I guess I shouldn't predict, but I, I find it hard to, to fathom that we'd face that intensive persecution here um, in my lifetime, that is. But let me say this. I, I definitely honestly think we're already seeing Christianity being marginalized, being personally more costly than it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Let me, let me put it this way. Christians are already seen as fanatical hypocritical misfits who are anti-intellectual and in the latest development, anti-family. Here's what I mean. The powers that be are working to redefine the word family to include homosexual marriage, all sorts of things. And anyone who holds to the biblical view that that's not family is anti-family, committing hate speech. Now, don't fear. I doubt that any of us in any time soon are going to be dipped in pitch. But I do think it's possible that, that things could get notably worse for the Bible-believing Christian in coming days. Now, some of you are thinking, great, I thought you said this was a book about hope. Listen, it It is. Think about it. If Peter can write a letter full of hope to people in those conditions, that means that there's hope for you, no matter what you're facing, no matter what's ahead of you. Now, maybe you're thinking, look, you don't need to tell me about persecution because I've got enough just trouble in my own circumstances. Well, let me let me encourage you. I think this whole book is not just for the persecuted, but for the sufferer. 
for any believer who is suffering or will suffer or has suffered. Okay, that's pretty much everybody. Peter is writing to the saints that are suffering and he writes to them. And I think, again, it's beautiful how when we open the scriptures, we get to eavesdrop and we, we discover, whoa, he's writing this for us. He's writing to them and to us, to you, to me. We have a living hope. Let's start first. Peter chapter one, verse one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, apostle means sent one, right? Peter was one who was sent out by Jesus. And we won't review very much here, but we we met Peter on Sunday. We saw that the very first word of this epistle, that the name Peter brings hope, right? If you were only, if you were receiving this letter in one of these cities that we're going to learn about here in a second, who are receiving this letter in the midst of persecution and you just cracked open the scroll just a little bit and you saw that first word, Peter, that would bring you hope. That is, if you knew anything about Peter and his history. Again, we won't go into it, but on Sunday we learned that at one, one point in his life, Peter was unsteady, unstable, right? And Jesus made him a leader, right? Being with Jesus made... Peter, this volatile character, rock steady, made him think before he leaped, which is a pretty big deal when you think about Peter. Um, Number two, Peter was unqualified as a spokesman. There there isn't a record in in the New Testament of a guy who put his foot in his mouth more than Peter. But here this guy is an evangelist bringing 3,000 people at one time into the church. Amazing. Right. Unqualified completely as a spokesman. But Jesus changed that undependable as a follower. Right. Peter says, I'm going to follow you even if it costs me my life. And then what he flakes, he fails. Right. Completely undependable. But we see in Peter's uh, in, in history, we see that Peter followed Jesus all the way to a martyr's death. Right. So just off the get go, there should have been hope. Bringing, bring, bringing hope for them and for you. Let me just say it more succinctly, <clears throat> more directly. If you are undependable, unsteady, unqualified, flaky, flighty, impulsive, a failure, one whose mouth is bigger than your heart, remember, as just the first time we cracked open this scroll, Jesus changed Peter so he can change you. He can totally change you. See, that is what Jesus does best. He says, I have come that they might have life and that more abundant. So first Peter, chapter one, verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Let me pull up a couple maps for you. Show you where it is that, uh, that Peter's writing to. Now, this is what they call a general epistle. So it's actually written to anybody who will read it. But there's a, a certain uh, area that, we're, that he mentions here, particularly by name. If you go on the far right-hand side, you'll see uh, Jerusalem, right, in the lower lower side of uh, on the right. Way up at the top on the, the right-hand side there, you'll see Pontus and Bithynia and Galatia. And Asia and Cappadocia. It's right up there. You see it? We have one more map that's closer than that, so you can see a little bit closer. 
So basically, this is modern-day Turkey, okay? Now, that, that's good enough. Everybody got it locked in? Okay. Now, this was the area that, by the way, Paul was forbidden to preach the gospel in. And yet, here, there's five Christian communities. Apparently, uh, God knows what he's doing, right? He said, Paul, you don't need to go there. I got, I got a different plan for that. Okay, here Peter is writing to this this uh, group of people. Peter's writing to suffering saints in these five communities, and here we have, I think, in in uh, this first verse, our very first clue to what I think the key is to having hope in hopeless situations. It's all about perspective. It's all about how you see yourself and how you see your circumstances. If you're taking notes, if you're making an outline tonight, you might write, want to write down a bunch of S's down the side of your page. All the stuff we're going to mention is going to start with S. So when the devil, that old serpent, says to you, suffering stinks. And you are suffering, aren't you? So God must have forgotten you. You must have slipped his mind. When the devil tells you that, you have a set of S's here that you can pull out. Okay? Remind yourself. Number one, the first S. You are just a sojourner. You're like, what's that mean? Uh, stranger. That's another S word. Okay, here's another word. Pilgrim. You are a pilgrim. Sufferer. Okay, you might not wear big buckles on your shoes. Carry a musket. But if you are a Christian... Bible says you are a pilgrim. Just real quick little joke for you. What happened to the pilgrim who was shot by an Indian? He had a narrow escape. Yeah. All right. That was to loosen you up. How'd it do? All right. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, it says to the pilgrims. The word is parapedimos. It literally means just what you think it would mean. One who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the side of the natives. So it's a stranger in a strange land. It's someone who is a foreigner. They don't really belong. They're just taking up residence for a while, but they don't really belong there. Listen, y'all. Matter of fact, close your eyes real quick. Anybody suffering? I see a hand. See a hand. Okay. All right. If you're suffering, this is this is really good stuff you need to know. Okay, you can open your eyes. First thing to you need to remember when you're suffering is we are sojourners. We are pilgrims. We are strangers. Right? We are strangers. True, some of us might be stranger than others. But if you're Christian, we're all strangers. Um, just like the song says, this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We are parapedimos, that is, strangers in a foreign land surrounded by natives. And we are not native to this world anymore. When you think about that, the truth, at least for me, sinks in that really we're just missionaries. We're ambassadors. We're missionaries in this particular town, in this particular area. How many of you have been on a mission trip? Okay. Lisa and I went on a mission trip with a youth group of Calvary Chapel, Orlando, several years ago, went to Managua. When we were there, we had some discomfort. Beans and rice. 
and beans and rice and beans and rice and then beans and rice. Uh, no bed. We slept on the floor. There were cold showers that you were allowed to use for like one minute. A certain amount of discomfort and suffering, but it was tolerable, right? Because there was an end to it. If, if you've been on a mission trip, do you remember that first shower when you got back home? Pretty awesome. See, the first thing to remember, guys, is that we are not home. We are strangers, we are sojourners, we are missionaries, we are pilgrims, and soon we'll be home. I don't know about you, but for me, that puts all of the discomfort, the suffering into a certain perspective. That brings me hope. We are sojourners, and it's interesting to me that the very first thing that Peter says is, Hello, pilgrims. Hello, missionaries. Hello, temporary people on this planet. So... If you're needing hope, number one, do you see yourself as a sojourner? Do you see yourself as a stranger in a good way in this land? And number two, here's your second S. Do you see yourself not only as a sojourner, but as a seed? Here's what I mean. First Peter chapter one, verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The word dispersion is that word that might be familiar to some of you. It's diaspora. It literally means to scatter seed. The word was originally used. This was common. If you, if you read this letter, you would be like, oh, yeah, diaspora. This was originally used for, for the Jews when they were scattered. Um, and it was adopted here to, to include all believers, Jews and Gentiles. A generation of Jews, if you, if you follow the Old Testament, right, pretty much the story went, generation would be disobedient. They would end up scattered from their homeland, right? And then God would be gracious and he would gather them back again into their homeland. Psalm 44, 11 says, speaking to the Lord, you have given us up like sheep for food like sheep for the slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. That was during one of those, those trying times. See, there's, there's a, a connection between being scattered and suffering. There's a picture to the average Jewish mind of being separated from the shepherd, right? Until the next time that they would miraculously be brought back into the fold, into the promised land. So inherent. I hope you're following me here. Inherent in the, the word dispersion, diaspora, is this. The idea of suffering, scattering of God's sheep. But here's the thing. If you go through the record, God has this amazing ability to never lose track of the scattered sheep. Over and over again, Israel would disobey and they'd be scattered. They would cry out, then they would be gathered together again. And I'm, it's, I'm thinking, maybe... Tonight, you came, and again, maybe you have no idea how circumstances brought you here tonight, but maybe you feel like you are scattered or shepherdless. Like the shepherd has maybe lost track of you. Do you know that, that sheep are dumb? Yeah? You know that a sheep can literally go just over the hill and be within. 10 feet, 15 feet of his shepherd and be freaked out. That's bad. 
right? Because they lose track of the shepherd, but the shepherd doesn't lose track of them. See, he's not lost track of you. I don't know who I'm speaking to. He is the good shepherd who the Bible says leaves the 99 to go after the one. But here's the question that I have for you. If you're suffering here tonight. Do you see yourself as a sheep for the slaughter? Or do you see yourself as a seed to be sown? See, in the Bible, if you look up this word scattered, you see it in both contexts. The, the sheep, Psalm 44, again, he, it's a lament. He's saying, Lord, you've given us up like sheep for the slaughter. That's in Psalm 44. But in other places, you find this, the same word scattered is used for the word seed. And what's, what happens when you scatter seed? Brings forth life and growth. Are you suffering how do you see yourself as a sheep surrendered by the shepherd for slaughter or as a seed in the hand of the sower? Turn with me to Acts chapter eight. I hope this is en- encourages you. Acts chapter eight. This was basically the beginning of suffering for Christianity as we know it. Acts chapter eight. Stephen has just been martyred. It is open season now on Christians. Okay, look with me. Acts chapter eight, verse one. Now, Saul, we know that guy ends up becoming Paul, the great evangelist, right? The 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 apostle. But here he's Saul. Now, Saul was consenting to Peter's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all say it with me, scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Doesn't look good, does it? Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who were, say it with me, scattered, went everywhere, preaching the word. That's awesome. Did you see it? Saul started growing the church even before he became a Christian. Right? By persecuting the church. Listen, this is huge. He intended to scatter the sheep for the slaughter. Instead, he unwittingly scattered the seed of the word. Jesus likened the word of God to a seed, right? Right. Over and over again, he talks about the word of God like a seed. A seed has life in it. Right. There's if you put a seed in the ground and give it a little bit of water, it's going to grow. Right. All inherent in a seed is life. It just needs to be scattered and watered. Each one of those sheep that Saul desired to slaughter instead sunk down into new fertile ground and upsprang new life all over the stinking place. Matter of fact, if you don't believe me, if you need a particular, just keep reading Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Here's one of those seeds. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Do you see it? 
let me put it this way. When the suffering, scattered saint decides to become a seed or to act like a seed, life springs up. When the suffering, scattered saint becomes a seed, life springs up. So here's a question. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a shepherdless sheep surrendered to the enemy for slaughter? Or do you see yourself as a seed in the hand of the sower? Here's the thing. Both require dying. But one brings forth new life abundantly. So if you're suffering, make that determination. Remember that you are a seed in the hand of the sower. And, and I'd encourage you, that's the time to share Scripture. Right? Sometimes we're like, well, I really want to share with people, but I don't, I don't have any opportunity. Listen, when you're suffering, everybody's watching you. That's the time to say, you know what? Things aren't so bad because, well, this is what, this, this is what the Word says. This is where my hope is coming from. You have a huge audience when you're suffering. Okay, so sojourner, seed, the next word, if you're looking for it, the S would be selected. Sojourner, seed, selected. Look at verse 2. Peter writing, he says, I'm writing to you who are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That word elect is eklektos. It's where we get... uh, ecclesiastical it means called out it means chosen means particularly picked out or chosen by god that's awesome um immediately probably for for many of us when you see that word elect immediately that eternal debate comes to mind right the sovereignty of god versus the free will of man let me say this that the bible is very clear comes down heavenly heavenly heavily on the side of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Both are true. No one knows how, how it works, really, but both are true. And it's really important, though, to realize and to dwell upon this, that God picked you. He chose you. Think about this. If you're suffering, you are hand-picked by God who knows everything now this is true universally for all Christians right you were handpicked by God but this is especially true and life saving for the Christian who suffers you were selected to suffer <laughs> you're like woohoo thanks for the encouragement Listen, listen. You were selected according to his foreknowledge. According to his foreknowledge of you, your temperament, the way you see things, your weaknesses, your strengths, your situation. I firmly believe that God does his best work through broken vessels tell you a story maybe you've heard before but g campbell morgan a famous preacher he and his wife went to hear a young hot shot preacher one sunday and the guy 
tore it up. It was awesome. His wife just couldn't stop talking about the guy. It's like, he was awesome. Didn't you think he was great? He was great. And G. Campbell Morgan was kind of quiet. And uh, she just kind of wouldn't let it go. It's like, didn't you think he was just amazing, really good? He said, well, he will be a great preacher after he suffers. He was a guy who had a whole bunch of head knowledge about the, the word, but he had no experience with suffering. Well, a few years later, this preacher was burying one of his kids. And on the way home, there was a lot, a lot of silence uh, in G. Campbell Morgan's uh, immediate vicinity. But his wife eventually said, so uh, what do you think of him now? said, now he's a great preacher. I don't know how to communicate this. I, we, some of us in leadership talked about it um, last week. So foreign that I can't really communicate it well. But if you're, if you're suffering, you get this. There's a fellowship, literally, of the suffering. There's a fellowship of the suffering, of the sorrowful, that you would never ask for, but it's it's sweet, if that's the right word. There's a power, there's a depth that he gives to those who suffer. I was just just off the top going through in my mind some of the people that have made the biggest impact uh, in my thinking and the, the way I see things and and uh, that kind of stuff. <clears throat> One is is John Corson, pastor uh, out on the West Coast. He lost his wife. Uh, tragically, many years ago, and then uh, several years after that, he lost his daughter. And when you hear this guy, you know that he's just anointed on fire. Uh, just last year, 2008, Greg Laurie, probably the next Billy Graham, lost his son <clears throat> to a tragic car accident. Just last year, Stephen Curtis Chapman lost his daughter. There is a depth to fellowship with Christ when we suffer. And part of it, listen, is knowing that he has foreknowledge. Again, I, I don't want to say it the wrong way, so that's why I feel like I'm a little bit crippled here, but knowing that God trusts Lisa and me with Noah and knowing that he knows all things so he won't give us more than we can handle, there's... There's comfort there. Think about that. God knows all that you can handle. And for some of us, he's saying, yeah, you can handle a lot. See, he is, and the title of this message is Selective Service. See, a lot of times we would like to be selective in our service. But we don't get to choose that. But it's amazing that he has chosen us. He's chosen you to go through the thing that you're going through. And again, that might not sound comforting, but just just so you know, we've got eight guys in leadership. Five of them have serious stuff going on with with their kids health or or other things. To me, it's it's not something that I am happy about. But I don't know, I kind of feel like God has his hand on us because he uses broken vessels. Perhaps God has given you a difficult mission. Remind yourself 
he gives these assignments out according to his perfect foreknowledge, that you might be a seed that brings forth much eternal fruit. And remind yourself, you're just a sojourner. You're just a, a stranger in this, this land, and it's going to be over soon. Really it is. Okay? Sojourner, seed, selected. And here's, here's a, a big phrase here of S's. Selected to be sanctified for service. Look at uh, verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. I think this will make the most sense if we work backwards from there. Notice that phrase, sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Sprinkling of the blood. That was a picture of a priest. That's what priests do. That's part of what they do. Um, Part of their duty was to sprinkle the blood of the bull or the goat or the ram for the remission of sin, right? Did you guys know that as believers, not only are you pilgrims without the buckles on your shoes, but you're also priests. And you don't even have to wear a robe. Matter of fact, just look across the page. You'll see 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He writes this, y'all, to suffering people. But he says, look, you're priests. Isn't that amazing to you? That sinners can become saints? That perverted posers can become priests. We're priests. We don't sprinkle the blood of goats or bulls or rams. It says here in that verse that we proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The blood, if you will, that we sprinkle is the blood of the Lamb of God that John the Baptist said takes away the sin of the world. Right. Our ministry is to spread this word, spread the word that, look, forgiveness is available through the blood of Christ. Our our ministry is to say to everyone who listen, receive the remission of sin by this blood that we're offering to you. That is the blood of Christ. See, we are selected for service. You'll see that basically selected would be represented at the beginning of verse two. Right. We were selected And notice at the end of verse 2 is service. And what's in the middle? Sanctification. There's another S. Verse 2. Elect, selected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are selected for service, but in between comes sanctification. Sanctification is hagiosmos. It means purification, consecration, to be set apart for some purpose. That means um, to, if God is giving you a job, he's preparing you for it, right? To, to, let me put it this way. To make you a, a truly useful as a sojourner, as a seed, as, one, as a priest, the one who represents him well and uh, correctly offers this, this wonderful gift of the free blood of Jesus, to, to make you useful in that way, after he selects you for service, he begins sanctifying, purifying. Now tell me, how do you purify metals? Turn up the heat. If you want to purify a metal, if you want to make 90% pure 
gold into 100% pure gold. You turn up the heat, and the dross comes to the top, right? The pressure, everything comes to the top where it's scraped off. Then rinse and repeat. Rinse and repeat. Until, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of that illustration, right? Until the artisan, the one who is, is working on this, this vessel of gold, until he can see his reflection. Right? He's selected you to be a sojourner that is a stranger in a strange land and a seed in the fertile ground of suffering. He selected you for service as a priest to sprinkle the blood of Christ upon anybody who will receive it. But first, he must sanctify. And how does he sanctify? Through suffering. He turns up the heat. He lets the junk come to the top and he scrapes it off until he can see his reflection in you and the world can too. How many of you have heard of the name Malcolm Muggeridge? A few. He was um, a great thinker and he uh, happened to also have a, he was, he, he was big in, in uh, journalism. Well, the, the only reason that I know his name is because of who, who says that uh, Malcolm Muggeridge was one of his mentors. That is somebody he, he just kept going back to and, and keep, kept reading quite a bit of his uh, wisdom. And that is Ravi Zacharias, this guy that I, like, oh man, I could listen to this guy all day. He quotes Malcolm Muggeridge all the time. And I found a quote by Malcolm Muggeridge that fits tonight. So does that make me as smart as Ravi Zacharias? I don't know. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Malcolm Muggeridge in July of 1990 said this. Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seem especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I have learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness. One of the smartest guys, not, Ravi Zacharias is about one of the smartest guys I know. The guy he says is super smart. He says, basically, everything I learned was through suffering. It wasn't through happiness. It wasn't through, you know, things just going right. It was through suffering. Now, that leaves, guys, just one word that we haven't exposited uh, except for the, the blessing there at the end of verse 2. That word, boom, 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 is obedience. If you look it up in the Greek, it also means submission, which is very interesting as we as we look at it. Look at verse two. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in sanctification of the spirit for obedience, submission and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. How do we learn obedience? How do we learn submission through suffering? Kids, right? Kids learn obedience through suffering. Or at least we hope they do. Right from the uh, Board of Education applied to the seat of learning. But did you guys know that though he never disobeyed, Jesus, our high priest, learned obedience, that is submission, through suffering. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. In case you're ever tempted to think, 
Nobody suffers like me. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 and look at our high priest. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So, so the father is saying to the son, you're my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 6, as he also says in another place, you are a priest according to the, forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. What's he talking about there? The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, right? Jesus lives a perfect life. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's saying, Lord, if it's your will, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not your will, but mine be or my will, but yours be done. With vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. So God heard him. But verse eight, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, if you know anything about the Lord Jesus, he didn't learn obedience in the sense that he was disobedient. He learned obedience in the sense of submission. Being submitted completely to the will of the Father. See, he did not need purification. We do. But he didn't. He did not need purification, but he became our high priest. And the Bible says here, well acquainted with grief, right? With with our suffering, with our weakness. He's our high priest who, who gets it. Why? Because of suffering. And that's just a side thought, too. I don't know if you're trying to make sense of your suffering. Here's another thing that maybe you've thought of. Maybe you haven't. Suffering helps us get it. When other people suffer. Right. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse four. Um, But blessed, blessed be the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Suffering helps us to get it so that when other people suffer, we can understand, we can empathize, we can comfort because we've been comforted by God. So, again, he has selected you to be included of the, in the fellowship of his suffering. And he's in the midst of refining you so that you can serve. Now, as we close, I know what you're thinking, some of you. You're thinking, I thought this was supposed to be about hope. Let's review, Pastor. <clears throat> You've told me that I'm going to be a stranger in a foreign land. Woohoo! You've told me that I'm a seed that has to die to bring forth fruit. Woohoo! You've told me that I'm selected to suffer. Lucky me. Woohoo! You've told me that I'm sanctified for this service that God has picked out for me through suffering. Yay! Woohoo! Two things for you, if that's what you're thinking. I want you to think about the never ending. And I want you to think about the now. Here's the never ending. You can write it down. Second Corinthians chapter four. This is your verse. 
Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Think about the never ending. Every single thing that you're facing right now has an end. Unless you're an unbeliever. If you're a believer, every single one of your trials, your suffering, all of it, there's an end to it. But he says, God is in the middle of working this tremendous suffering, this hurt, into something awesome that you have no idea is on the other side of you that will not end. It's eternal. And here's another verse if you're looking for it. First Peter chapter 4, verse 13. This is in the same book that we're going to come to eventually. He says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. And again, we're going to see this. It's amazing to me. Every time you, you, you see this word suffering, pretty much in this, this letter, you're going to see the word glory. Crazy. Just look around close, close to that area and you'll, you'll probably see that word. It's like God's reminding us over and over again. Yes, yes, I know. I know. I know you're suffering. But there's glory on the other side. Okay, so think about the never ending. But here, number two, think about the now. The now for you is at the end of verse two. He says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Y'all, and I can attest to this. And anybody who's suffered more than... Maybe a little bit. Maybe maybe you're in that the first time where you're really, really hurting about something that is like threatening to, to take down your faith. But once you've been through it for a little while, you can testify to this. Always, when God allows suffering, He supplies grace. Always. Absolutely always. Let me put it this way. When He subtracts comfort and ease... He multiplies His grace and peace. If you're suffering, if you're suffering and the the thought of never-ending glory just isn't quite enough today because you're like, that's then. What about now? If If I'm talking to you, come to Him tonight. Receive His grace now. Because he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is enough to sustain you from now until that point where you receive the glory. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Lord, um, you know every heart, Lord, every situation here. Again, I don't think it's any surprise that you seem to be uh, filling this room or relatively, Lord, on a Thursday night that you've handpicked, Lord, everyone to come and to hear. Lord, you know that the suffering that, uh, Lord, each one of us in this room, we would be embarrassed to be in uh, at a party with these folks who were dipped in pitch, Lord. But, Lord, you, you know each one of our circumstances. And you know for us... In our circumstances, Lord, they're very real and they still hurt and it's still tough. 
So, Lord, I thank you that you have you've shown up tonight, Lord, and, and you speak your words, Lord, of eternal life. We're like Peter, who even back when he was young and impulsive, had this great insight. And you said, would you leave us, leave me as well? And he said, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, I just ask that you please minister to those who are uh, are suffering. That you'd bring hope, Lord, to the hopeless. That you would uh, just make your presence known. We thank you for all the examples over and over again. Paul writing from a prison. Lord, um, these these folks are receiving this this message of hope in hopeless situations. We thank you that you have your hand upon us, Lord. You're preparing us for whatever it is that's in our future. And you're, you're reminding us that we have a living hope. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.